They came to the hollows of Lacedaemon and drove to Menelaus's palace, which they found filled with guests. Menelaus was hosting a double wedding party for his son and his daughter. He was sending her to wed the son of Achilles, as he had promised long ago in Troy, and now the gods were bringing the marriage to pass. He was sending her off with horses and chariots for her journey to the city of the Myrmidons, over whom her husband-to-be was lord. For his son he was bringing a bride from Sparta, the daughter of Alector. This son, Megapenthes, was born from a slave woman, for the gods had made Helen barren after the birth of her daughter Hermione, who had the beauty of golden Aphrodite. So Menelaus's kinsfolk and neighbors were feasting in the great hall. A bard was singing and playing the lyre, and two tumblers whirled among the guests and led them in the dancing. Telemachus and Nestor's son halted their horses at the gate, and Eteoneus, Menelaus's right-hand man, came out and saw them and went through the hall to bring the news to the shepherd of the people. He stood at Menelaus's shoulder and his words flew fast. Two strangers have arrived, Lord Menelaus, two men in the line of Zeus by their looks. Should we unyoke their horses or should we send them elsewhere for hospitality? And red-haired Menelaus, greatly displeased, it's not like you to talk nonsense like this, Etionius. How many times have you and I enjoyed the hospitality of others, hoping that Zeus would someday put an end to our hard traveling, unyoke their horses, and bring our new guests into the feast? He spoke, and Etionius hurried through the halls, calling other attendants to come along with him. They unyoked the sweating horses and tied them at the stalls, where they threw before them a mixture of spelt and white barley. They leaned the chariot against the gleaming entrance walls and led the men into the palace. Their eyes went wide as they looked around the mansion of this sky-bred king, for a light as of the sun or the moon played over the high-roofed home of glorious Menelaus. When they had taken it all in, they went into the polished tubs. When the maids had bathed them and rubbed them down with oil and clothed them in, in tunics and fleecy cloaks, they sat down on chairs beside Menelaus. A maid poured water from a golden pitcher into a silver basin for them to wash their hands, and then set up a polished table nearby. Another serving woman, grave and dignified, set out bread and served generous helpings from the other dishes she had. A carver set down cuts of meat by the platter and the golden cups, and a herald came by and poured them wine. Then red-haired Menelaus said in greeting, Enjoy yourselves and eat. After supper, we will ask who you are. Your bloodlines have not been lost in you. You belong to the race of men who are sceptered kings, bred from Zeus. You're not just anybody. And he set before them the prime cut of roast beef that had been served to him as a mark of honor. They helped themselves to the feast before them, and when they had had enough of food and drink, Telemachus spoke to Nestor's son, holding his head close so the others wouldn't hear. Do you see all this, Pisistratus, my friend? These echoing halls flashing with bronze, with gold, amber, silver, and ivory? This must be what the court of Olympian Zeus looks like. This is unimaginable wealth. Notice here that Telemachus and Pisistratus, presumably, are really impressed by Menelaus's palace. This tells us that Menelaus is a much richer and more powerful king than either of their fathers, Nestor or Odysseus. Um, Menelaus is the king of Sparta, and the Lacedaemon is the region that Sparta is found in. So he is um, a big political power in Greece. He is also 
the brother of Agamemnon, the king of Mycenae, who was slain by his wife and her lover when he returned from the war. And most importantly, of course, Menelaus is the husband of Helen. Menelaus, the red-haired king, overheard him, and speaking to both of them, had this to say, No mortal man could challenge Zeus, my boys. His halls and possessions are everlasting. My wealth may be matched by another man's, or it may not. But if it is true, I brought home shiploads after wandering for eight hard years. Cyprus, Phoenicia, Egypt, I went all over. Came to the Ethiopians, the Sidonians, the Arembi, even to Libya, where the lambs have horns soon after they're born. The ewes give birth three times a year there, and neither shepherd nor lord ever runs short of cheese, meat, or milk. The flocks are milked year-round. While I wandered through those lands amassing wealth, wealth, my brother was murdered, caught off guard by the treachery and guile of his accursed wife. So I do not enjoy being lord of this wealth. You may have heard all this from your fathers, whoever they may be, for I suffered greatly and saw my house ruined with all its treasures. I would gladly live with a third of my wealth and have those men back who perished in Troy, far from the blue grass pastures of Argos. And yet, though I weep for them often in my halls, easing my heart, I do not grieve constantly. A man can get too much of chill grief. I miss them all, but there's one man I miss more than all the others. When I think of him, I don't want to sleep or eat, for no one in the entire Greek army worked as hard as Odysseus. And all he ever got for it was pain and sorrow, and I cannot forget my sorrow for him. He's been gone so long, and we do not know whether he is alive or dead. Old Laertes must mourn for him, Penelope too, and Telemachus, who was an infant when he left. His words roused in Telemachus the desire to weep for his father. Hot tears fell from his eyes when he heard his father's name, and he pulled his purple, purple cloak over his face. Seeing this, Menelaus wondered whether he should allow Telemachus to bring up his father himself, or whether he should draw him out with pointed questions. While Menelaus pondered, pondered this, Helen came from her fragrant bedroom like gold-spindled Artemis. Adraste, her attendant, drew up a, chair, a beautiful chair for her, and Alcipi brought her a soft wool rug. Another maid, Philo, brought a silver basket, a gift from Alcandre, wife of Polybus, who lived in Thebes, the city in Egypt that has the wealthiest houses in the world. Polybus had given Menelaus two silver baths, two tripods, and ten bars of gold. And his wife, Alcandre, gave to Helen beautiful gifts of her own, a golden spindle, and a silver basket with gold-rimmed wheels. This basket Philo now placed beside her, filled with fine-spun yarn, and across it was laid the spindle twirled with a violet wool. Helen sat upon the chair, a footstool under her feet, and questioned her husband. Do we know, Menelaus, who our guests claim to be? Shall I speak my mind or not? My heart urges me to speak. I have never seen such a resemblance between any two people, man or woman, as between this man and Odysseus's son, as I imagine him now, Telemachus, who was a newborn baby when, for my sake, shameless thing that I was, the Greeks came to Troy with war in their hearts. And Menelaus, the red-haired king, now that you mention it, 
I see the resemblance myself. The feet, the hands, the way he looks at you, that head of hair. And just now when I was talking about Odysseus, saying how much he went through for my sake, tears welled up in his eyes, bitter tears, and he covered his face with his purple cloak. At this, Nestor's son Pisistratus spoke up. Menelaus, son of Atreus, Zeus bred king, this is indeed, as you say, Odysseus's son. But he is prudent and would not think it proper, when he just got here, to make a big speech before you, whose voice delights us as a god's. Nestor of Gerenia sent me with him as a guide, for he was eager to see you, hoping that you could suggest something he could do or say. A son has many problems to face at home when his father is gone, and there's no one else to help him. So it is now with Telemachus, whose father is gone, and there is no one else among the people to keep him from harm. And Menelaus, the red-haired king, What's this? Here in my house, the son of my dear friend who did so much for me. I used to think that if he came back, I would give him a welcome no other Greek could ever hope to have if Olympian Zeus had brought us both home from over the sea in our swift ships. I would have given him a city of his own in Argos, built him a house, brought him over from Ithaca with his goods, his son, and all of his people, a whole city cleared out just for him. We would have been together, enjoying each other's company, and nothing would have parted us until death's black cloud finally enfolded us. But I suppose Zeus himself begrudged us this, for Odysseus alone, that unlucky man, was never brought home. His words aroused in all of them a longing for lamentation. Argive Helen, a child of Zeus, wept. Telemachus wept, and Menelaus wept, the son of Atreus. Nor could Nestor's son keep his eyes dry, for he remembered Antilochus, his flawless brother, who had been killed by Memnon, Dawn's resplendent son. And this memory gave wings to his words. Son of Atreus, old Nestor used to say, whenever we talked about things like this, that no one could match your understanding. So please understand me when I say that I do not enjoy weeping after supper, and it'll be dawn before we know it. Not that I think it's wrong to lament the dead. This is all we can do, cut our hair and shed some tears. I lost someone myself at Troy, my brother, not the least hero there. You probably knew him. I'm too young ever to have seen him, but men say Antilochus could run and fight as well as any man alive. And Menelaus, the red-haired king, no one could have put that better, my friend, not even someone much older. Your speech, wise and clear, shows the sort of father you have. It's easy to spot a man for whom Zeus has spun out happiness in marriage and children, as he has done for Nestor throughout his life. And now he has reached a sleek old age in his halls, and his sons are wise and fight with the best. So we will stop this weeping, and once more think of our supper. Let the servants pour water over our hands. Telemachus and I will have much to say to each other come morning. So he spoke, and Asphalion, Menelaus's attendant, poured water over their hands, and they reached out for all the good cheer spread out before them. At this juncture, I want to point out to you um, the idea of all of these grown men, and Helen as well, weeping in public is not among the Greeks considered a sign of weakness. Rather, it's a it's a way of showing their great emotional attachment, which is part of what makes them noble and heroic. But Helen, child of Zeus, 
had other ideas. She threw a drug into the wine bowl they were drinking from, a drug that stilled all pain, quieted all anger, and brought forgetfulness of every ill. Whoever drank wine laced with this drug would not be sad or shed a tear that day, not even if his own father and mother should lie there dead, or if someone killed his brother or son before his eyes. Helen had gotten this potent cunning drug, drug from Polydamna, the wife of Thon, a woman in Egypt, where the land proliferates with all sorts of drugs, many beneficial and many poisonous. Men there know more about medicines than any other people on earth, for they are of the race of Paeon, the healer. When she slipped the drug into the wine, Helen ordered another round to be poured, and then she turned to the company and said, Menelaus, son of Atreus in the line of Zeus, and you sons of noble fathers, it is true that Zeus gives easy lives to some of us and hard lives to others. He can do anything after all. But you should sit now in the hall and feast and entertain yourselves by telling stories. I'll start you off. I couldn't begin to tell you all that Odysseus endured and accomplished, but listen to what that hero did once in the land of Troy, where the Achaeans suffered. First, he beat himself up, gave himself some nasty bruises, then put on a cheap cloak so he looked like a slave, and in this disguise he entered the wide streets of the enemy city. He looked like a beggar, far from what he was back in the Greek, Greek camp, and fooled everyone when he entered Troy. I alone recognized him in his disguise and questioned him, but he cleverly put me off. It was only after I had bathed him and rubbed him down with oil and clothed him and had sworn a great oath not to tell the Trojans who he really was until he got back to the ships that he told me at last what the Achaeans planned. He killed many Trojans before he left and arrived back at camp with much to report. The other women in Troy wailed aloud, but I was glad inside, for my heart had turned homeward, and I rued the infatuation Aphrodite gave me when she led me away from my native land, leaving my dear child, my bridal chamber, and my husband, a man who lacked nothing in wisdom or looks. You'll notice that Helen is really smart. She, alone of everyone in Troy, was able to recognize Odysseus through his disguise, even though he went to the trouble of beating himself up and um, dressing in a beggar's clothes. He did everything he could to disguise himself for this spying mission. Helen, however, sees clearly. Um, something else to notice about Helen is there's a certain tension between her and Menelaus here. Let's hear what Menelaus has to say next. And Menelaus, the red-haired king. A very good story, my wife, and well told. By now I have come to know the minds of many heroes and have traveled far and wide, but I have never laid eyes on anyone who had an enduring heart like Odysseus. Listen to what he did in the wooden horse when all we where all we Argive chiefs sat waiting to bring slaughter and death to the Trojans. You came there then with godlike Deiphobus. Deiphobus is the younger brother of uh, Paris. Some god who favored the Trojans must have lured you on. Three times you circled our hollow hiding place, feeling it with your hands, and you called out the names of all the Argive leaders, making your voice sound like each of our wives in turn. Diomedes and I, sitting in the middle with Odysseus, heard you calling and couldn't take it. We were frantic to come out, 
or answer you from inside, but Odysseus held us back and stopped us. Then everyone else stayed quiet also, except for Anticlus, who wanted to answer you. But Odysseus saved us all by clamping his strong hands over Anticlus's mouth and holding them there until Athena led you off. Think about this. The men were hidden inside the Trojan horse, the wooden horse that they used uh, to end the war. It was Odysseus's idea to build the horse and hide soldiers inside so that the, the Trojans would bring it within their walls. And uh, at night they snuck out and took the city. Helen is smart enough that she understands something is going on here. And she's decided to play a trick on the men inside, one of whom is her own husband. These people have a really interesting relationship. Then Telemachus said in his clear-headed way, Menelaus, son of Atreus in the line of Zeus, is it, it is all the more unbearable then, isn't it? My father may have had a heart of iron, but it didn't do him any good in the end. Please send us to bed now. It is time we rested and enjoyed some sweet sleep. He spoke, and Helen of Argos told her maids to place beds on the porch and spread upon them beautiful purple blankets and fleecy cloaks. The maids went out of the hall with torches and made up the beds, and a herald led the guests out to them. So they slept there on the palace porch, the hero Telemachus and Nestor's glorious son. But Menelaus slept in the innermost chamber of that high house, next to Helen, Zeus's brightness upon her. Dawn brushed her pale rose fingers across the sky, and Menelaus got out of bed and dressed. He slung his sharp sword around his shoulder, tied oiled leather sandals onto his feet, and walked out of the bedroom like a god. Then he sat down next to Telemachus and said, Tell me, Telemachus, what has brought you here to gleaming Sparta over the sea's broad back? Public business or private? Tell me the truth. Telemachus took a deep breath and said, Menelaus, son of Atreus in the line of Zeus, I came to see if you could tell me anything about my father. My land is in ruin. I'm being eaten out of house and home by hostile men who constantly throng my halls, slaughtering my sheep and horned cattle in their arrogant courtship of my mother. And so I am at your knees. Tell me how my father, Odysseus, met his end, whether you saw it with your own eyes or heard about it from someone else, some wanderer. He was born to sorrow more than any man on earth. And do not, out of pity, spare me the truth, but tell me whatever you have seen, whatever you know. I beseech you, if my father, noble Odysseus, ever fulfilled a promise he made to you in the land of Troy where the Achaeans suffered, remember it now and tell me the truth. And Menelaus, deeply troubled by this, those dogs, those puny weaklings wanting to sleep in the bed of a hero, a doe might as well bed her suckling fawns in the lair of a lion, leaving them there in, a, in the bush and then going off over the hills looking for grassy fields. When the lion comes back, the fawns die an ugly death. That's the kind of death these men will die when Odysseus comes back. Oh, Father Zeus and Athena and Apollo, bring Odysseus back with the strength he showed in Lesbos once, where he re when he wrestled a match with, with Philomelades and threw him hard, making all of us cheer. That's the Odysseus I want the suitors to meet. They'd get married all right to bitter death. 
But as to what you ask me about, I will not stray from the point or deceive you. No, I will tell you all that the infallible old man of the sea told me, and hide nothing. I was in Egypt, held up by the gods because I failed to offer them sacrifice. The gods never allow us to forget them. There's an island in the white-capped sea just north of Egypt. Men call it Pharos, and it lies one hard day's sailing offshore. There's a good harbor there where ships take on fresh water before heading out to sea. The gods kept me stuck in that harbor for twenty days. A good sailing breeze never rose up, and all my supplies would have been exhausted, and my crew spent had not one of the gods taken pity on me and saved me. This was Adothia, daughter of Proteus, the old man of the sea. Somehow. I moved her heart. She met me as I wandered alone, apart from my crew who roamed the island continually, fishing with bent hooks, their, their bellies cramped with hunger. She came close to me and spoke, Are you completely out of your mind, stranger, or do you actually like suffering like this? You've been marooned on this island a long time with no end in sight, and your crew's fading fast. She spoke like this, and I answered her, I tell you, goddess, whichever goddess you are, that I am not stranded here of my own free will. I must have offended one of the immortals. But you tell me, for gods know everything, which of the immortals is pinning me down here and won't let me go, and tell me how I can sail back home over the teeming sea. And the shining goddess answered me, Well, all right, stranger, since you ask. This is the haunt of an unerring immortal, Egyptian Proteus, the old man of the sea, who serves Poseidon and knows all the deeps. They say he's my father. If you can somehow catch him in ambush here, he will tell you the route and the distance, too, of your journey home over the teeming sea. And he will tell you, Prince, if you so wish, what has been done in your house for better or worse while you have been gone on your long campaign. So she spoke, and I answered her, Show me yourself how to ambush the old god, or he may give me the slip. It's hard for a mortal to master a god. And the shining goddess answered me, I'll tell you exactly what you need to know. When the sun is at high noon, the unerring old man of the sea comes from the salt water, hidden in the dark ripples the west wind stirs up, and then lies down to sleep in the scalloped caves. All around him seals, the brine spirits brood, sleep in a herd. They come out of the gray water with breath as fetid as the depths of the sea. I will lead you there at break of day, and lay you in a row, you and three comrades, chosen by you as the best on your ship. Now I'll tell you all the old man's wiles. First he will go over the seals and count them, and when he has counted them off by fives, he will lie down like a shepherd among them. As soon as you see him lying down to rest, screw up your courage to the sticking point and pin him down, no matter how he struggles and tries to escape. He will try everything and turn into everything that moves on the earth, and into water also, and a burning flame. Just hang on and grip him all the more tightly. When he finally speaks to you of his own free will, in the shape you saw him in when he lay down to rest, then ease off, hero, and let the old man go, and ask him which of the gods is angry with you, and how you can sail home over the teeming sea. And with that, she slipped into the surging sea. I headed for my ships where they stood on the sand and brooded on many things as I went. When I had come down to the ships in the sea, we made supper, 
And when night came on, we lay down to take our rest on the beach. When dawn came, a palmetto of rose, I went along the shore of the open sea, praying over and over to the immortal gods, taking with me the three of my crew I trusted the most for any adventure. The goddess, meanwhile, dove underwater and came back with the skins of four seals, all newly flayed. She was out to trick her father. She scooped out hiding places for us in the sand and sat waiting as we cautiously drew near. Then she had us lie down in a row and threw a seal skin over each of us. It would have been a gruesome ambush. The stench of the seals was unbearable, but the goddess saved us by putting ambrosia under each man's nose, drowning out the stench with its immortal fragrance. So we waited patiently all morning long, and then the seals came from the water in throngs. They lay down in rows along the seashore, and at noon the old one came from the sea. He found the fat seals and went over the herd, counting them up. He counted us first, never suspecting any kind of trick, and then he lay down. We rushed him with a shout and got our hands on him, and the old one didn't forget his wiles, turning first into a bearded lion, then a serpent, a leopard, a huge boar. He even turned into flowing water and a high leafy tree. But we held on, gritting our teeth, and at last the wily old one grew weary and said to me, Which god have you plotted with, son of Atreus, to catch me off guard? What do you... He spoke, and I answered him. You know, old man, don't try to put me off. How long I have been stuck on this island with no end in sight. I'm losing heart. Just tell me this, you gods know everything. Which of the immortals has marooned me here? How can I sail home over the teeming sea? When I said this, he answered, You should have offered noble sacrifice to Zeus and to the other gods before embarking if you wanted a speedy journey home over the deep purple sea. It is not your fate to go home to your friends and native native land until you go once more to the waters of the Egyptus, the sky-fed river, and offer holy hecatombs to the immortal gods who hold high heaven. Only then will they grant the journey you desire. A note here, the river Egyptus is actually the Nile. Um, also, the name of this god whom Menelaus is addressing in this story, Proteus, um, has given rise to an adjective that we use still in modern English, the adjective protean, meaning something that is changeable, something that can change shape to match its needs. So much like the god can change his shape to try to escape from these, uh, from Menelaus and his sailors. When he said this, my spirit was crushed. It was a long, hard pull over the misty deep, back to the Egyptus. Still, I answered, I will do all these things just as you say, but tell me this and tell me the truth. Did all the Achaeans make it home in their ships, all those whom Nestor and I left at Troy? Or did any die on shipboard or in their friends' arms after winding up the war? To which Proteus said, Why, son of Atreus, do you ask me about this? You don't need to know, nor do I think you will be free from tears once you have heard it. Many were killed in the war. You were there and know who they were. Many, too, survived. On the homeward journey, two heroes died. Another still lives, perhaps, held back by the sea. Ajax went down among his long-oared ships. Poseidon had driven him onto Gyre's rocks, but saved him from the sea. He would have escaped despite Athena's hatred, but he lost his wits and boasted loudly that he had survived the deep in spite of the gods. Poseidon heard his boast, and with his trident he struck Gyre's rock and broke it asunder. 
one part held firm, but the other part upon which Ajax sat in his blind arrogance, and fell into the gulf and took Ajax with it, and so he perished, his lungs full of salt water. Your brother, though, outran the fates in his hollow ships with the help of Hera. But when he was nearing Malia's heights, a storm wind caught him and carried him groaning over the teeming sea to the frontier of the land where Thyestes once lived, and after him Thyestes' son, Aegisthus. Then the gods gave him a following wind and safe passage homeward. Agamemnon rejoiced to set foot on his ancestral land. He fell to the ground and kissed the good earth, and hot tears of joy streamed from his eyes. So glad was he to see his homeland again. But from a high lookout, a watchman saw him. Aegisthus had treacherously posted him there and promised a reward of two bars of gold. He had been keeping watch for a year by then, so that Agamemnon would not slip by unseen and unleash his might, and now he reported his news to Aegisthus, who acted quickly and set a trap. He chose his twenty best men and had them wait in ambush. Opposite them, on the hall's farther side, he had a feast prepared, and then he drove off in his chariot brooding darkly to invite Agamemnon. So he brought Agamemnon up to the palace, unaware of his doom, and slaughtered him, the way an ox is slaughtered at the stall. None of Agamemnon's men was left alive, nor of Aegisthus's. All were slain in the hall. Once again, we have a retelling of the story of Agamemnon, who you'll remember was Menelaus's brother, and was also one of the principal characters of the Iliad, not the story of the war itself. <coughs> Proteus spoke, and my heart was shattered. I wept and wept as I sat on the sand, losing all desire to live and see the light of the sun. When I could not weep or flail about any more, the unerring old man of the sea addressed me. Weep no more, son of Atreus. We gain nothing by such prolonged bouts of grief. Instead, go as quickly as you can to your native land. Either Aegisthus will still be alive, or Orestes may have beat you to it and killed him, and you may happen to arrive during his funeral. Orestes is the son of Agamemnon and Clytemnestra. These words warmed my heart, although I was still in shock. Then I asked him, I know now what became of these two, but who is the third man, the one who's alive but held back by the sea, or perhaps is dead? I want to hear about him, despite my grief. Proteus answered me without hesitation. It is Laertes' son, whose home is in Ithaca. I saw him on an island, shedding salt tears, in the halls of Calypso, who keeps him there against his will. He has no way to get home to his native land. He has no ships left, no crew to row him over the sea's broad back. As for you, Menelaus, Zeus's cherished king, you are not destined to die and meet your fate in bluegrass Argos. The immortals will take you to the ends of the earth and the Elysian fields, where Radamanthus lives, and life is easiest. No snow, nor storm, nor heavy rain comes there, but a sighing wind from the west always blows off the ocean, a cooling breeze for men. For Helen is your wife, and in the gods' eyes, you are the son-in-law of great Zeus himself. Remember that Helen is a daughter of Zeus. <coughs> and with that, he dove into the surging sea. I went back to the ships with my godlike companions and brooded on many things as I went. When we had come down to the ships in the sea and had made supper, immortal night came on, and we lay down to take our rest on the beach. When dawn came with palmettos of rose, 
we hauled our ships down to the shining water and set up the masts and sails in the hulls. The crews came aboard, and sitting in rows, they beat the sea white with their churning oars. And so I sailed back to the rain-fed Egyptus, moored my ships, and offered perfect sacrifice. When I had appeased the everlasting gods, I heaped up a barrow for Agamemnon, so that his memory would not fade. Only then did I set sail for home, and the gods gave me a following wind that brought me back swiftly. Well, now I want you to stay in my halls until eleven or twelve days have passed, and then I will give you a royal send-off and these splendid gifts, three horses and a polished chariot and a beautiful cup so that you can pour libations to the deathless gods and remember me all the days of your life. Telemachus answered in his clear-headed way, Son of Atreus, do not keep me here long. I could spend a year in your house and never miss my home or my parents. That's how much I enjoy listening to you and hearing your tales. But even now my crew is getting restless back in Pylos, and you are keeping me long here. As for gifts, give me whatever treasure you will, but I will not take horses to Ithaca. They are better off here for you to enjoy, for you rule a wide plain with lotus everywhere and gallingale and wheat and spelt and heavy ears of white barley. But Ithaca has no broad horse runs or meadowlands at all. Its pasture is for goats and more lovely than horse pasture. None of the islands that slip to the sea has rich meadows or is good for driving horses, and Ithaca least of all. And Menelaus, who could make his voice carry in battle, said to Telemachus, you are of good blood, my boy, to talk like that. All right, I will change my gifts as I easily can. Of all the gifts that lie stored in my house, I will give you the most beautiful and the most valuable, a well-wrought bowl, solid silver with the lip finished in gold, the work of Hephaestus. The hero Phaedimus, king of the Sidonians, gave it to me when I stayed at his house on my way home. Now I want you to take it home with you. And while they talked to each other, the banqueters came to their lord's palace, driving sheep with them and bringing wine and bread that their veiled wives had sent with them. And so they were busy with the feast in Menelaus's halls. And now you'll notice that we have a change of scene. Meanwhile, back in Ithaca, the suitors were entertaining themselves in front of Odysseus's palace again, throwing the javelin and discus on the level terrace, arrogant as ever. Antinous and Eurymachus, who were their natural leaders, were sitting there, and Noemon, son of Phronius, came up to them and asked Antinous, Antinous, do we have any idea when Telemachus will return from Pylos? He's gone off with a ship of mine, and I need her to cross over to Elis, where I have twelve broodmares and ten mules still at the teat. I would like to drive one of them off and break him in. When he said this, Antinous and Eurymachus just looked at each other. They had no idea Telemachus had gone to Nelian Pylos. They thought he was somewhere out in the field with the sheep flocks or off with the swineherd. Antinous questioned Noemon closely. Tell me exactly when Telemachus left, and who went with him, a hand-picked crew from the island, or, or his own field hands and slaves? He could have done it either way. And tell me this, so I'll have it right. Did he force you to give him the ship, 
or were you just doing him a favor? And Noemon answered him, I gave it freely. What else could I do when a man like that with all his troubles asks me? It would be hard to refuse him. Those who went with him are the best in town, after ourselves. And when they boarded, and when they boarded, I noticed Mentor going on board too, as their leader, either a mentor or a god who looked just like him. I wonder about this because I saw Mentor here yesterday morning after he had set sail for Sandy Pylos. With that, Noemon left for his father's house. Antinous and Eurymachus were furious. They made the, studers, the suitors stop their games and had them sit down. Antinous addressed them. His black heart was seething with anger and his eyes burned like fire. Unbelievable! Telemachus has some nerve pulling off this voyage. We never thought we'd see it happen and the boy is up and gone just like that, with all of us against it, launching a ship and picking the best crew around. He's going to start giving us trouble soon. May Zeus cripple him before he reaches manhood. All right, now, give me a ship and twenty men so I can lie in ambush and watch for him as he comes through the strait between Ithaca and rocky Samos. He'll be sorry he ever made this voyage in search of his father. They all praised his speech and urged him on. Then they stood up and went to Odysseus's palace. It did not take Penelope long to find out the suitor's dark intentions. The herald, Medon, was the one who brought her word. He had overheard the suitors talking as he stood outside the courtyard where they were weaving their plots, and now he went through the hall to tell Penelope. As he crossed the threshold, she asked him, Medon, why have the suitors sent you here? To tell the handmaids of divine Odysseus to drop everything and prepare a feast for them? May this be their last courtship, their last party. Oh, may this latest feast be their last of all. Do you hear me, you thronging leeches who are eating away Telemachus's property? You surely weren't listening to your fathers when you were children, or you would have heard what kind of man Odysseus was to them, how he never wronged anyone in word or deed, how he was fair to everyone, unlike most sceptered kings who all have their favorites. He never lost his temper with any man at all. But your vile deeds and hearts are plain to see, and there is no gratitude for kindness past. Then Medon, the tactful herald, if only this were the greatest evil lady, but there is a greater and more grievous. The suitors are planning, and may Zeus never bring their plans to pass, to kill Telemachus on his way back home. He went to Sandy Pylos and gleaming Lacedaemon for news of his father. When Medon said these things, Penelope felt that her heart had been unstrung. Her eyes filled with tears, and she was unable to speak for a long time. Finally, she said to the herald, Medon, why is my son gone? There was no need for him to board any seagoing ships, which men use to cross the wide water as they use horses on land. Why did he go? So that not even his name would be left among men? And Medon, the tactful herald, I do not know whether a god urged him on or his own heart moved him to go to Pylos to learn either of his father's return or the manner in which he met his fate. So saying, Medon went into Odysseus's house. Pain washed over Penelope and seeped into her bones. She could not bring herself to sit down in one of the many chairs that were there in the house, but sat curled on the worn threshold of her bedroom and wept. Around her, the women of the house moaned softly, 
the old and the young, and Penelope spoke to them through her tears. Hear me, my friends, for the god on Olympus has given me pain beyond all other women of my generation. I have lost a fine husband with a heart like a lion, the glory of the Danaeans, the pride of all Hellas, a man of many virtues. And now the winds have ripped my beloved son from my house. I never even heard him leave. You were cruel, each of you, not to think of getting me from bed, for you must have known he was going aboard that hollow black ship. If I had known he was setting out on this journey, he would have stayed here despite his willfulness, or else he would have left me dead in our halls. Quick now, someone go get old Dolios, the servant whom my father gave me before I left home and who now tends my orchards. He should sit with Laertes and tell him all this. Laertes may be able to weave some plan and complain to the people about these men who want to destroy his and Odysseus's line. And her beloved nurse, Eurycleia, said, Child, you can spare me or stab me with a sword, but I will not hide what I know. I was in on all this. I got his provisions, bread and sweet wine. He made me swear not to tell you until twelve days had passed, or until you missed him yourself, or heard he had gone. He didn't want you crying. Now take a bath and put on some clean clothes, then go upstairs with the serving women and pay to, pray to Athena, daughter of Zeus. No matter what, she can save your son from death. But do not trouble the old man. He has troubles enough. Yet I do not think the line of Laertes, son of Arcesius, is entirely hated by the blessed gods. There may still be someone in that line to own this high hall and all the rich fields around. So the old nurse soothed Penelope's grief and kept her eyes dry. Penelope bathed and put on clean clothes. Then she went upstairs with the serving women, put barley for strewing in a basket, and prayed to Athena. Hear me, mystic daughter of Zeus, if ever in these halls my cunning Odysseus burned fat thigh bones of bulls or sheep for you, remember it now and save my beloved son. Protect him from the arrogant suitor's violence. Penelope voiced this prayer, and Athena heard it, while down in the shadowy halls below those, these same suitors were talking noisily, making crude comments such as these. So, while the lady upstairs gets ready to marry one of her suitors, she has no idea that her suitors are arranging to murder her son. But they had no idea of what was being arranged. Antinous had some words for all of them. Are you crazy? Stow that kind of talk, or someone may report it to those inside. We're going to do what we said we would under cover of silence. We're all in this together. And he picked out the twenty best men there. They went down to the shore of the sea and hauled a fast ship out onto the water. They set up mast and sail in that black ship and fit the oars into the leather thole straps, all in due order. Then they unfurled the white sails, their attendants brought all their gear aboard, and they moored the ship where she would catch the evening breeze. Then they disembarked, ate their dinner, and waited for twilight. Penelope lay in her room upstairs. She would not touch any food or drink, but only lay there worrying about her son, wondering whether he would escape from death or be killed by the insolent suitors. Surrounded by men, a lion broods, and then panics when they begin to tighten their crafty ring. So too Penelope, until sleep drifted over her, and she sank back with all her body relaxed. I want you to notice 
those two lines in italics at the top of page 68, lines uh, 850 and 851. They're in italics because it is the first instance of what we call a Homeric simile. And I will write up a lesson for you about these, um, explaining why they're important and how they're used. Athena's eyes were flashing in the dark. She made a phantom in the form of a woman, Iphthemy, daughter of great Icarius, Penelope's sister. Now wed to Eumelus, whose home was in Pherae, she sent the phantom into Odysseus's house to stop Penelope's weeping and sobbing. It drifted into her room through the keyhole and stood above her head and spoke to her. Asleep, Penelope, and brokenhearted. The blessed gods are unwilling that you should weep and be sad, for your son will return. He has not offended the gods at all. And Penelope, slumbering sweetly at the gate of dreams, answered her, Why have you come here, sister? You live far away and have seldom come before. You tell me to stop grieving. Tell me to rest from the sorrows that plague my mind and heart. Long ago now I lost my fine husband, a lion-hearted man, the glory of the Danaeans, the pride of Hellas, a man of many virtues. And now my beloved son has gone away in a hollow ship, a mere child who knows nothing of the world of men. I grieve for him even more than for my husband. I'm trembling with fear that he will get hurt, either among the people he's gone off to visit or on the open sea, for his many enemies are plotting against him and mean to kill him before he gets home. The glimmering phantom answered her, Take heart, and don't be so afraid. The guide who goes with him is one many men pray for to stand at their side, a powerful ally, Pallas Athena, and she pities you in your grief, for it is she who sent me to tell you this. And Penelope, in her circumspect way, If you are truly a god and have heard a god's voice, tell me also of that man of many sorrows, whether he still lives and sees the light of the sun, or whether he is dead and in Hades' dark world. The glimmering phantom answered her, No, I will not speak of him, whether he be alive or dead. Empty words are ill-spoken. And the phantom slipped through the keyhole and became a sigh in the air. Penelope started up from sleep, and her heart was warmed by the clear dream that had come in the soft black night. By now the suitors had embarked and set sail, their hearts set on murdering Telemachus. There is a rocky island out in the sea, midway between Ithaca and rugged Samos. Asterus is its name, not very big, but it has a harbor with outlets on either side where a ship can lie. There the suitors waited. 